Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our brand new Substack newsletter and website at LetItRollPodcast.com. We've got archives of every episode sorted by genre, era, guest, co-host, and mini-series. It's also a great way to support the show if you can afford it. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. Today, Nate concludes his two-part Let It Roll telepathic interview with the still-living but unavailable Andrew Lou Goldham to discuss his second memoir, Two Stoned. We cover Oldham's undoing with the Stones, the arrival of Alan Klein, Oldham's firing, and Oldham's brutal take on the death of Brian Jones. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're telepathically joined by the spirit of Andrew Lou Goldham, the author of Two Stoned. This is our third episode on Mr. Oldham. I'd still love to have him on the show, Andrew, if you're listening. Please reach out. I'll keep reaching out to you. But the book's just too important to the story we're telling uh, for me to be hindered by things like author availability. So we're just going to dive back into the in, into this tale. And where we left off um, was... I want to tell the story of one of Andrew Lug Oldham's key managerial achievements. This is the kind of thing that he did. He recently said he was inducting the kinks into something or speaking at some kind of award show. And he said that one of the things that separated a truly great band from a lesser great band was great management. And he said that great bands had great managers, that the Beatles had Brian Epstein, the Rolling Stones had Andrew Lug Oldham himself, and you know, the Who had kit and chris stamp and um the kinks didn't the kinks suffered from a lack of of management which obviously they achieved great things but they didn't achieve what the stones achieved and that's there's no doubt about that and so i want to tell the story of the time the stones opened or followed james brown they headlined this thing called the tammy show which was a filmed live concert held in los angeles and it's um one of the pivotal moments of mid sixties rock and it had such a diverse cast had tons of Motown performers, lots of English bands like Jerry and the pacemakers had the beach boys on there had Bo Diddley and had the stones and the stones had to follow James Brown, which um, at the peak of his powers in the mid sixties was no laughing matter, especially for a bunch of English boys who's, entire gimmick was repackaging, ripping off American, you know, Afro-American music and, and selling it back to American white kids. So this was a, a very tough challenge. But Tony Basil, who later um, became famous as a performer in her own right, after several years as a successful dancer and choreographer in Hollywood, she was there. 
And she um, tells the tale of watching the, the stone. She says, I recall seeing Brian Jones, who was very elusive, and Mick Keith and the other stones hovering around close to the TV monitor. They were freaking out over James Brown, digging him so much they actually backed away from the TV screen. Then I saw the looks on their faces as the realization kicked in they would have to follow him on stage. And just so, this change came over them. James Brown had this huge orchestra and backup singers and was the greatest dancer I'd ever seen in my life. I'd never heard any squeals like this, enhancing his reputation. One of the greatest theatrical, televised, whatever you want to call it, screen performances ever. Forget live performance. This was going on screen to movie houses. It was going to go down in history. As a dancer and a choreographer, I understood it on another level. And I said to David Winter, the choreographer, Damn, the stone's got to follow him. Jesus Christ, how is that possible? Anyway, later I find out that Andrew Oldham was so smart that he staged a massive equipment breakdown, as well as suggesting some camera angles just to hold things up so time would pass after James Brown's performance. That was the buzz. It was Andrew. He was smart. He was buying time. Well, I'm sorry. I don't care how much time was going to go by. I just thought these guys were dead in the water. The Santa Monica Civic Auditorium stage was very wide. Since we were the choreographers, David and I decided to go out and sit on the side of the stage off camera. I wanted to see what the hell was going to happen. I wanted to see the audience's reaction to them. I wanted to see how they were going to get out of this one. Anyway, a lot of time went by. A lot of time. It seemed longer than a half hour to me. So finally, maybe the tune was around and around where there's a big cymbal crash in the opening of the song and Mick had a tambourine in his hand and simultaneously with the crash in the music, Mick jumped up in the air and as he jumped up in the air, Brian Jones turned his back on the audience, which was the first rebellious piece of theater I had ever seen in my entire life. I come from vaudeville. My parents were in vaudeville and on stage, you never turned your back to the audience. So Mick was jumping in the air. Brian had his back to the audience, and Mick hit the ground in a crouch. And not one person, including me, ever remembered James Brown again. Now, I think that's a bit of a, a stretch to say that people forgot James Brown, but it it was an accomplishment that the Stones were able to put on a performance. And one thing I have to point out, and I hate to do this as a Brian Jones partisan, but Tony misremembered this. And this is telling to me how much Brian Jones dominated the public image of the Stones at this point in time. Because if you watch the video, it's Keith Richards who turns his back on the crowd, not Brian Jones. And Keith's doing nothing more than checking in on Charlie Watts to start the song. So he's completely unselfconscious about this. But for years, I was fascinated with this idea of Brian Jones and his rebellious anti-theater. But it turns out it was just Keith Richards doing uh, non-rebellious anti-theater. <laughs> and, and, and that was how Andrew Oldham got them out of one of their tighter jams. But... Around this time, uh, he brings somebody into the story who's going to kind of lead to – he brings in his own replacement, essentially. And he brings in Alan Klein. And Alan Klein's the guy we talked about a few times on this show, but not as much as we need to. Alan Klein first comes to prominence as the manager for Sam Cooke. Again, somebody I haven't um, done an episode on, but I need to do that. been trying to get Peter Goralnik uh, to talk about his Sam Cooke book and documentary, but – Probably just going to have to go ahead and do it as a telepathic episode. Regardless, Alan Klein had a reputation for going in as this hard-nosed accountant from nowhere, New Jersey, who could go into record companies and terrorize them by auditing the books. And he was always confident that the record companies were behind on their payments to artists and the formula never failed. So he comes in with Sam Cooke and 
at the end of Sam Cooke's life, Sam Cooke owned his own publishing company. He owned his own record label. He had a license deal with RCA where he produced his own records and licensed them to RCA. Seemingly, the guy was in the catbird seat. Tragically, he's killed in a totally awful incident in a Hollywood motel. But shortly thereafter, within a few years, Alan Klein ends up owning every bit of the Sam Cooke empire. His widow and heirs, as far as I know, got little to nothing of it. And and uh, the SARS record label that Sam Cooke had founded becomes the foundation of Alan Klein's Abco Records. And this is a pattern that's going to recur time and time again. And like everybody else with a brain in 1960s music, he figured out that England was the place to go. He went over to England. One of his first clients that he signed was Mickey Most, who was a record producer whose uh, calling card was he had produced the Herman's Hermit's first hit um, into something good. He had also produced the Animals' first hit, first hits, uh, particularly uh, House of the Rising Sun. And he had produced Tobacco Road by the Nashville Teens, which you don't hear much about the Nashville Teens, but Tobacco Road was a top 10 hit in the States. And so Mickey Mouse's calling card was, look, I produced these three completely different records by these three completely different acts. I'm a legit producer. I'm a star and a creator in my own right. And Alan Klein comes in and represents him. Mickey Mouse goes on to continue having an outstanding career producing the Jeff Beck Group um, and and Susie Quattro and many others has has a great career as a, a British pop producer. Then he sets his sights on uh, he he signs up Donovan as well, who's also produced by Mickey Most. Then he sets his sights on the Stones, and because Oldham had signed these partnership deals with Eric Easton as a very young person, he wasn't even legally old enough to sign a contract when he formed these partnerships. He didn't realize that Eric Easton had signed all, had structured all the deals to his own benefit and to the disadvantage of Andrew Lou Goldham. So he was looking for somebody to rescue him from Eric Easton as much as anything else. And Alan Klein managed to do that. But let's go ahead and hear our first tune. And this is one of the songs. This is where the Stones first run of massive American hit singles that really started with The Last Time but runs through Satisfaction, Get Off My Cloud, 19th Nervous Breakdown, Paint It Black, etc. This song, Have You Seen Your Mother Baby Standing in the Shadow, is the end of that run. And it was marred by production problems. And when you listen closely, it's because they're recording on four track and they're trying to do overdubs, trying to basically keeping up with the Beatles. And... The more you did overdubs on a four-track tape, the more the sound quality would get degraded. And this was an incident where they were very happy with the original song. Keith Richards, to this day, swears it would have been the greatest stone single ever if the proper mix had been released. But Aldum tells a story that they're adding the final touches to it, and they need to add another guitar part. And because the original guitar part had been under-recorded, they couldn't turn it up anymore without adding a bunch of room noise and tape hiss. And they couldn't overdub any additional guitars because it would be on the same frequency and would get bogged down in the same way. And so Aldham tells the story as if he saved the day by coming up with the idea of he and Mick and Keith essentially mouth farting the guitar parts. So listen closely and you'll hear um, Mick, Keith and Andrew Oldham trying to sing their way out of a production problem. This is the Rolling Stones. Have you seen your mother, baby? Standing in the shadow. Standing in the shadow, well, I was just passing the time. I'm all alone, 
And that was 1966. Have you seen your mother, baby, stand in the shadow by the Rolling Stones? And that that was what they saw as the end of the road for their proto-psychedelic or Bob Dylan-influenced uh, experiments, experimental run of singles, which have been massively successful, of course, including the classic I Can't Get No Satisfaction, as well as the last time Get Off My Cloud, 19th Nervous Breakdown, and Paint It Black. And and have you seen your mother, baby, kind of brought that to a, to an end. They go back for their next single as a double A side of uh, Ruby Tuesday on one side, which we've already talked about in this series, and uh, Let's Spend the Night Together, which is a piano-based rocker, kind of a return to the basics. So they were kind of a year ahead of the times as far as getting away from psychedelia, at least on their singles, and turning back towards rock and roll. Although uh, that's going to change as the year progresses, and they're going to wallow in psychedelia, but we'll get to that. And so the Alan Klein comes in. He's brought in to negotiate with Decca, their record company, and pulls the same exact move that he pulled on everybody else, where he said, you know, he acts very intimidating. Andrew Lee Goldham did a great job of selling him as if he were some sort of organized crime figure, which, as far as I know, is very far from the truth. He was just a, a self-educated uh, kid from New Jersey, literally grew up in an orphanage and put himself through uh, accounting school and maybe law school at night while working a day job. But anyway, they managed to terrorize Decca. And uh, Keith Altham, who was a writer for the uh, Melody, for the New Musical Express at the time, uh, kind of tells the tale. He says, with Alan Klein, it was not so much physical fear as the sense that he was prepared to go into a record company office with an abundant knowledge of contractual law and accountancy and demand to see certain things that nobody had ever asked for. The reason the companies feared him was they were hiding things, and they were hiding things because it was making them more money. So rather than having Alan Klein come down on them, they'd fork out huge sums. Alan was like one of the Bowery boys. He just went straight for the juggler. Instead of doing nice English business, he would just mentally attack people. I saw him once operating with three guys who came round to the Hilton from ATF, ATV television at the time Andrew was trying to finance Only Lovers Left Alive, which was a book that Ultimate licensed. Uh, with the hopes of making a Rolling Stone movie. They were wanting to do a deal for a Rolling Stones TV spectacular. Klein made them wait downstairs for half an hour while he read a comic book. It was all a game. Then he brought them up, shook hands, ushered them to seats, put his basketball boots up on the table, looked at all three of them and said, Mr. Smith, Jones, and Barker, which one of you three would like to be the spokesman? He wasn't going to bother talking to three people at the same time. One of them said, oh, I think I can speak on behalf of my colleagues, Mr. Klein. Fine, he says. I've got just one question to ask you. Can you sign your name on the bottom of a check on behalf of ATV? No, I can't, the guy replied. Thank you, gentlemen. This audience is, an, is at an end, said Klein, and they trooped out. It might have been crass or considered to be bad-mannered, but it was actually quite clever business because it cut right to the quick. So this is the character that Alan Klein bring, that Andrew LeGolden brings in. Klein manages to do the same exact thing with the Stones that he uh, is going to go on to do with the Beatles and virtually everyone else he did business with. Allegedly, what he did was he negotiated a much better deal with Decca with a huge cash advance, higher royalty rates, everything the Stones wanted in a record contract, one of the best record contracts going at the time. And they signed with Naker Felge, which was, as we discussed, the, the nom de group songwriting handle that they'd used after their roommate James Felge and the combination of Nankering, which was a face that Keith and Brian would make when they were messing with people. 
but it was also the name of one of their holding companies. And Klein apparently set up an American Nanker Felge Incorporated and had all the deals with DECA go into Nanker Felge Incorporated rather than Nanker Felge Limited. So for several years, all of the money in the Rolling Stones business empire went directly to Alan Klein's company. And they would literally have to beg him for spending money for the next five years or however long his tenure lasted. He managed to get complete control and get it immediately. Now, Brian Jones and Bill Wyman had both sided with Eric Easton and tried to resist the Alan Klein juggernaut, much the way that Paul McCartney would try to resist Alan Klein taking over the Beatles management. The difference is that Paul McCartney was a much stronger character and a much bigger part of the Beatles than Brian Jones and Bill Wyman were parts of, of the Rolling Stones. So McCartney wasn't able to veto it, but he never did sign with Alan Klein and launched a series of lawsuits that he fought to the bitter end until he drove Alan Klein out of the Beatles business empire. But Brian Jones and Bill Wyman were not capable and they weren't willful enough or strong enough to, to put up that kind of fight. But I do want to, um, talk a little bit about more about Brian Jones because Oldham's just a great source for insight on on Brian Jones. And there's a key moment when the Stones went to Clearwater, Florida in 1965. And this book doesn't go into the allegations against Brian for what happened in that incident. But there's other books. Philip Norman's book, The Rolling Stones, goes into it. I believe Stephen Davis's Old Gods Almost Dead goes into it. But allegedly, Brian and Bill picked up a couple of Florida beauty queens and Brian Jones ended up, he had gotten into a pattern of being very abusive with women he picked up on the road and that he apparently blacked her face. And it was undeniable that something awful had happened and that she had been abused. And so Oldham's way of dealing with it was to send one of their roadies in uh, to rough Brian up. Don't touch his face or his hands. But uh, the guy broke two of Brian's ribs. And that was the same night, ironically, that Keith, uh, in his sleep, tape records the riff that's going to become Satisfaction. And so this is seen by many as an absolutely pivotal moment in the seesaw power relationship between Brian Jones and Keith Richards, that Brian Jones has had things largely his own way in their relationship up to this point. But from now on, once Keith has written the Stones' all-time greatest hit national anthem, and Brian's been disgraced within the organization. It wasn't public, but everybody in the organization knew what had happened, and no one approved of what Brian had done, and everyone was happy uh, that Brian had been punished for it and in a physically brutal way, and the power dynamic never changed. And they immediately then traveled to Chicago, where they had recorded at Chess Studios and had recorded um, It's All Over Now, and several other hits, and they try to record a version of, of Satisfaction, but as Andrew Luke Oldham describes it, one of them was a harmonica-laden version of Satisfaction that just would not do. It was acoustic-driven, wayward, and the hook registered as marginal to nout. The only thing that rose above the scum line was Brian Jones blubbering like a sitcom outtake in search of a perennial residual. He was, in too, he was too enthusiastic about this version of Satisfaction for him or it to be taken seriously. I'm sorry, dear Brian. If in my books as published by Random Above, you think I've been giving you an unfair grilling in absentia, but truth be told, by now you are becoming a daily liability and hourly pain in the arse. So then they go to RCA Studios in Los Angeles and record a Satisfaction 
with Dave Hellinger, and that's the classic version. But let's go ahead and hear uh, a different song. It's kind of a non sequitur, but this is the Stones in 1967 doing an all kazoo version of Muddy Waters' Trouble in Mind. And, and the reason I'm including it is because this is from a period when Brian was ascendant within the band, that his partnership with Anita Pallenberg had led to a renewed partnership with Keith Richards, and Mick Jagger was kind of out of the loop in this period of time. And and when you listen to this, which is totally fascinating because it's got Brian, Keith, and Mick, all three playing kazoos. So you can hear their musical personalities interacting in a pure way. Like you can hear songs where you can hear Mick's harmonica interacting with Brian and Keith's guitars. You can hear Brian's harmonica interacting with mixed vocals and Keith's guitars. You can hear Brian and Keith's guitars interacting in a lot of songs, but there's no other recording I'm aware of where you can hear all three Stones principals playing an instruments together. And, and it's fun to try to pick out who is who. And it also, you can hear from the conversation at the beginning that Brian is in charge of the session. And I think this was probably true of most of the sessions in this period. This is Trouble in Mind by the Rolling Stones, unreleased. Yeah, let's do it at that. Look, Stu do the first chorus, then we'll join in on a riff and then see what happens. <laughs> Now is the Rolling Stones all kazoo version of Trouble in Mind headed up by Brian Jones. And um, a couple more tales I want to tell about Brian uh, and Keith in Los Angeles in this period. And this is a period of time when they're very tight and they're um, two of the coolest guys on earth, frankly. There are stories of them showing up at Andy Warhol's uh, warehouse and literally ruling the roost, just being absolutely king dicks to everybody they want to and, and people falling all over them. The hippest people in New York are just falling all over these cats. But there's a story uh, from L.A. that uh, Denny Bruce, who was in Frank Zappa's Mother of Invention, uh, told about hanging out. And he said, I'd always heard stories and I'd always assumed the Stones would have been big grass smokers. By the time I met them, this would be the aftermath sessions. They were in, They were introduced to the really good green stuff. The first night we were all together, Brian and I were at Jack Nietzsche's house. That's uh, the arranger and, and session musician who was Phil Spector's right-hand man. The Stones' U.S. road manager, Michael Gruber, was there with an attractive girl. Keith was there, too. Michael had on this expensive suit and was trying to impress this fashion model. And Brian made him get down on all fours like a dog. Michael had said with his New York accent, man, I've been smoking shit since I was 11. He takes about two hits and is now on all fours barking, and these guys are all rolling on the floor laughing at him. I looked around for Brian, and he was out in the kitchen making a mustard, ketchup, and mayonnaise sandwich and eating it with it dripping off his chin. Yet he's dressed immaculately, and his hair looks like a Breck commercial. So that's uh, <laughs> a classic incident of, of Brian Jones being um, what he was. And then um, there's another tale that Al Aronowitz, who's the guy who introduced the Beatles to Bob Dylan and was present for 
the first time the Beatles, the Beatles had smoked pot a couple times or different John Lennon and George Harrison had smoked pot on a couple of incidences, but never really gotten high. But this incident in 1964, while Aronowitz and Bob Dylan show up in their hotel suite in New York and get them really high is, is a famous cultural moment. But, um, Aronowitz had, uh, some insights, um, on Jones. He says, um, I introduced everybody to everybody. I brought Dylan and the Stones together, Dylan and the Beatles together. Brian Jones was the most popular here at first. One time he told me he'd fucked 64 girls in one month. I didn't believe Wyman was the big cock of the walk he says he was. Brian was really a druggie. Any kind of pill you gave him, he'd swallow it. He didn't care what or when. Any kind of pill. He didn't ask what it was. It affected him. He had epilepsy, so I understand if he didn't take his seizure pills, he could have died. Marijuana had opened everything up, enabled you to really hear the music and get into it, concentrated on on it, a real gateway drug. Hanging out with the Stones was like hanging out at the children's table at a wedding, while hanging out with the Beatles was like sitting at the head table. The Beatles were like conquering emperors. The Stones were like wild kids. And then um, there's a, another tale I wanted to include about Brian Jones partying with the pros. And this was Sandy Lou Golden. And he says, um, the endless socializing at parties had started to take its toll on Brian Jones. He was now partying with professionals, and this raised his normal plethora of drugarettes to a whole new plateau of madness. Girls in London might sit in awe of the slovenly sexual guru, agog at his ability to consume and transport them physically with him. Some he may have just bashed about. But the American groupie animal led the event, taking no prisoners, and Brian started to get very frayed around the edges. He could still triumph in the hotels of Manhattan, L.A., and major stopovers, but this cost him concerts and commitments throughout the Midwest and caused Keith to go it alone in Wisconsin, Kentucky, Kansas, and Ohio. Mick and Keith didn't even bother to tell me until Brian had started to nod out in the studio. And now we'll come to the bit about um, Linda Leach, and she... she, uh, has a take on Andrew Lee Goldham and says, uh, anyway, when Andrew came into the picture, it seemed like the focus started going on to Mick and Keith. There were lots of arguments. I'd hear Brian on the phone with Andrew, and there were lots of negative things going back and forth. Brian wasn't too pleased about this Oldham character coming into the picture and taking over. Mick and Keith kind of got on really well with him. And because I was pregnant, Andrew and the other Stones didn't really want me around. I remember the boys driving around in a Mini while Brian and I drove around in a Humber Hawk, which was a big, solid car my father had suggested Brian get instead of a Mini. We were kind of the squares. Andrew and the boys thought we were unhip being in the family situation with me pregnant and thinking about getting married and all of those corny things. I started to feel rejected and pushed out and that I wasn't welcome around the band anymore. And Brian felt the pressure. That began our split. So there were terrible feelings for the next six months or so after I had the baby and we drifted apart. And then uh, she says, my thing with Andrew basically was I felt he pushed Brian away from the Stones, but also away from me. I've hung out with Andrew in the years since, and I don't blame anyone. Brian was a strong person. He had his insecurities, but he knew what he wanted. Mick and Keith were young. They didn't quite know, so it was easy for Andrew to manipulate them. He couldn't do that with Brian. Brian knew what he wanted, and Andrew couldn't tell him what to do. And then she tells a story about how she met uh, Donovan at a party, and Brian uh, tried to steer her away from him because she didn't think that Donovan was was good enough for him. And then she tells a story about how um, 
she introduced Linda Keith, who was this rich, uh, she describes her as a rich Jewish socialite. And she started going out with Keith after I introduced them. I got on really well with her and then Keith dumped her and she ended up in LA totally neurotic and crazy. Her father tried to have her committed. She escaped and came and stayed with me for a while in LA. I was down there when the Beatles came down to see the Stones in Richmond, and I remember John Lennon had a girlfriend and a wife, too, who was hidden. I felt a bit like that. We were the two who were told we mustn't be talked about or seen with the guys. That's how it was then. Brian was the blonde beauty. Yes, he was. I remember Mick and Brian getting on really well, good friends, deep feelings between them about everything. It devastated Brian when Mick took over. It crushed his ego. He'd be looking in the mirror going, oh, God, Linda, do I look okay? I cut his hair, of course, because I was a hairdresser. I was the one who started that longer hair thing and that falling in the face. I know the Beatles had their haircuts, but I started it with Brian. Um, Very strange, isn't it? My whole thing with them. Even to this day, I still don't understand what it was about me that was so weird they didn't want to accept me. Usually when I dream about them, which I do every so often, because it was a major part of my life and a big change, I still don't understand it. Andrew, as I mentioned before, told a story about how uh, after he and Brian Jones had um, gone to Dr. Max Jacobson's for the Dr. Feelgood treatment, that Brian took him to a club where he saw Jimi Hendrix playing an early version. And it turns out Linda Keith was uh, the one who had introduced Brian Jones to Jimi Hendrix. So let's take a sponsor break. And when we come back, we'll talk more about Linda Keith and her relationship with the Stones. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stephen Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, 
you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, Rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. All right, so this is uh, Andrew Oldham's wife, Sheila Klein Oldham, telling the story of, of Linda Keith and Jimi Hendrix. She says, Linda Keith discovered Jimi Hendrix on the Bowery. She got involved with him. Then her parents flipped and carted her off to a nut house. I think she ended up having shock treatment, too. She told me she took Andrew to see Jimi and hoped Andrew would manage him. But Andrew was just not interested. So she took Seymour Stein to see him, too. Seymour Stein later found Sire Records. Um, her parents were very Jewish and straight. That's why she couldn't stay with Jimmy for long. She was out of control. While she was still with Keith Richards, Linda had moved on to Brian Jones, and she was always coming around to our house for secret dates with Jimi Hendrix. Thank God Andrew was always out. Keith was a very nice, ordinary boy. He was mad for Linda, and she really wasn't interested. She was smoking a lot of grass, and he was completely straight, Keith. So I said to him, maybe if you smoked a bit, you might be able to stay on her wavelength. At that time, Keith had not the slightest interest in drugs, but he thought Linda uh, was the bee's knees. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, it's interesting that young, innocent Keith is being led astray uh, by Linda Keith and and that she's cheating with Brian Jones, which kind of takes the edge out to some extent. She was not the first girlfriend of Keith's that Brian had slept with. And um, I guess was the last, unless you account their relationship with Anita Pallenberg. Um, Oldham also has some some commentary about Brian Jones's death that's, I think, very telling. The thing about Oldham is he, he, he never makes any bones about his biases or his dislike for Brian Jones, but he makes it clear, well, he's fair, I'd say. And then, uh, <laughs> actually, I gotta, I've got to talk about this. While they were trying to make movies, they did a... a a documentary and um, called Charlie is my darling that filmed an Irish tour that was sort of a screen test for the stones. And then Andrew says that um, Charlie Watts was my darling. And I entitled the movie as such when it became apparent upon viewing the footage that Charlie and Charlie alone was the only member of the group who managed to be natural on camera. And that, and that, reality verite mode, reasonably unselfconscious and true. Bill Wyman came in second, much to the surprise of my effete elitism, with Mick, Keith and Brian tying and dying in last place. Although I said not about it at the time, not having the skills to confront this reality without leaving blood on the floor, I remember the cold, grim, black and white morning I left Whiteheads and walked around Soho Square knowing the stones were not to the celluloid manner born. I probably headed for my office and spewed out a hundred film progress announcements to cover my tracks. In Charlie, Brian Jones was in full intellectual overmode, spinning his claim to be not only the vision but the brains behind the stones. You have to remember it did not matter to me about what might have been. I had been in the business of what was. Brian didn't communicate with his interviewer, nor did he listen. He just talked a collection of revisionistic, wishful-thinking meanderings, a collection of words, not even sentences, that had Peter Whitehead, the director, and I falling about rewinding and playing bits to make sure that Brian had indeed spewed out this nonsense. Listen, Peter, I'd say, it's just words. He's not actually saying anything. Yes, said Peter, while the rest beg off from being asked to take themselves seriously. That's all poor Brian does. 
And I can tell you, I've seen Charlie's My Darling in a theater before with a crowd, and Brian Jones's uh, solo monologues in there are absolutely spinal tap worthy, and and um, uh, you know, drew massive laughs from the crowd that were watching. But then I want to get into a little bit more about why um, the Stones fired Andrew Lee Goldham, and they uh, I talked about. Have you seen your mother, baby, standing in the shadow? And that was recorded in the sessions for Between the Buttons, although it was released as a single separately. But um, this is George Chance, who is an engineer at uh, Olympic Studios in London. And he said that um, the tracks were largely composed in the studio and there was an enormous amount of time wasting. The studio staff thought Andrew was being pushed out by the Stones, who saw Andrew's world as something they didn't really want to relate to. It was too cramped for them to expand into. They were hanging around with John Lennon and downing psychedelics like there was no tomorrow or going off to Maharishi classes. It's a well-known syndrome. Andrew was out of the club suddenly, and they didn't want to work with him. Plus, they believed Between the Buttons had got panned and hadn't sold particularly well. The Stones looked towards breaking their contract with Andrew, and they found they couldn't. But they did find that he was responsible for the studio bills, so they were certainly careless with money. The Satanic Majesty sessions went on for several months, perhaps more often than six, and quite often the Stones used both studios. They suddenly found a reason for saying that the portable four-track wasn't as good as the other four-track in Studio 2. It was all done on four-track, and we did four-to-four transfers. The pressure to keep the bills under control was definitely not present, and the Stones would have worked tighter than they did, but they chose not to. One day Mick came in and said, right, Andrew's out of the way, Glenn, you're doing it. And that's Glenn Johns, the the uh, legendary engineer and producer. They never really trusted Glenn, but they'd always come back to him, the old faithful. And then Olympic became the nightclub that was open after all the other ones closed. We got the bloody lot, the whole scene, all the hangers on, sometimes 50 people. We lost an inordinate amount of headphones and properties. And so... Um, Bill Wyman says, Andrew had got fed up. He didn't think Mick and Keith were writing good songs anymore, and they started to contradict him. His ideas were not as interesting as they thought theirs were. The band was more aware of what we wanted to do musically, and Andrew disagreed. As the days went on, more ideas and suggestions from Andrew were thrown out or ignored. And Mick Jagger told Rolling Stone magazine, I think we were just taking too much acid. The whole thing, we were on acid. We were on acid doing the cover picture. It was really silly, but we had fun. Also, we did it to piss Andrew off because he was such a pain in the neck because he didn't understand it. We wanted to unload him. We decided to go on this path to alienate him without actually doing it legally. We forced him out. I mean, he wanted out anyway. We were so out of our minds. Andrew's got a a quote for their their final conversation. He says, "Um, I felt fondly that I did not belong, was not wanted. I dialed Olympic Studios and asked for Mick. Yes, Andrew. Mick, I'm not coming back. I think it's time we called it a day. Well, Andrew, if that's how you feel. There, I thought that didn't take long. Yes, Mick, that is how I feel. I said, feeling like that and shit. Well, Andrew, was that Andrew to me? No, it was thrown by a pro to the control room stalls. If you made up your mind. Yes, I have. We don't need to do our laundry in public. So if you agree, I agree. We can sort it out between ourselves and Alan. Hopefully Alan can work it out. Sounds good to me, said Mick. So that's it then. Yep, that's it, Mick. Okay, Andrew, good night. Goodbye, Mick. Have a good life. And then um, essentially never reconciled with with Mick Jagger after years of being his closest confidant, mentor, manager, and advisor. And and um, the two of them never um, made it up. And in fact, Andrew Lou Goldham is noticeably not mentioned in the Rolling Stones uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame speeches when they even uh, are kind enough to thank Brian. 
for his role, but Oldham was somebody they, that they could just cut out of the picture and did. And so um, for our next song, let's hear Citadel from Satanic Majesty's Request. This is one of the few songs that cuts through the clutter and is a solid rocker. And that was Citadel from the Rolling Stones, their Satanic Majesty's Request, one of the few tracks that sticks to the basics of rock and roll that I love the Stones for. But now I want to talk about Brian Jones's death um, and Oldham's commentary on it. Uh, he says, In the Judy Garland James Mason, A Star is Born, when the end comes for Norman Vane, he wades with style and dignity into the Pacific Ocean and the next life. Mason's exit is much better than Chris Christopherson's pathetic rock, rock and pop cry for attention in the 1977 version of A Star is Born. James Mason, with the frugality of the 50s, merely wastes a pair of swimming trunks, where our boy Chris shows the excess of the time and in putting himself away, wipes out a perfectly decent Maserati. Brian Jones's death was dignified, a private, a private affair attended by only a few close friends. He just wastes a life, maybe. It depends on your point of view about completed cycles, the inevitable, and succeeding at your death wish. Shortly before midnight on a humid, balmy Wednesday night, 2nd July 1969, Brian, slightly or quite affected by the evening's heat and his intake of drink and downers, got fed up with watching telly and went for a swim in the heated pool of his Cotchford farm in the plural belt of Sussex. Less than one month before, Brian and Mick Jagger announced to the world via Leslie Perrin in a non-combative United Address that the paths of Brian and the Stones had separated and Brian Jones had left the Stones. In perfect Brian speak, he, quote, no longer saw eye to eye with the others over the discs we are cutting. The work of Mick and Keith has progressed at a tangent, at least, to my way of thinking. Mick added, Brian wants to play music that's more his own rather than always playing ours. We've parted on the best of terms. And then he says, Mick Taylor, he's, who's the replacement for Brian Jones, said had more in common with Brian Jones than guitar excellence and a unique style of playing their first love, the blues. Just as the before bloated by excess and pain Brian had been so very, had been to so very many, Mick Taylor was very pretty, ash brown, long hair, shy and pale. The Stones had a double, another double header handled for the next five years in sound and image. Tall and thin, he fit right into the triple threat front line. Still fresh from the club circuits, Taylor's face showed him unused or using, wide-eyed, unabused and eager, with no particular devils in his dance of life so far. He and I would work together only once in the early 90s. We toasted ourselves on being the only two to leave the Stones of our more or less free will and live to tell the tale. Others would not be so lucky. Brian had seemed to handle his break from the Stones in a remarkably sober and practical manner, at least on the surface, and I had admired this newfound aplomb from my distance. I hoped the surface had some substance and that Brian intended to use the split for positive change and not abuse himself or others any further. Certainly, he did choose wise counsel with whom to discuss his future, the caring blues guitarist Alexis Corner. He was supposed to have been positively feeling out forming a new band, fascinated with, and using as his example and role model, the American-based pop and blues band Creedence Clearwater Revival. 
John Fogarty's West Coast combo, who'd hit big in the summer of 69 with Proud, Proud Mary and Bad Moon Rising, and who seemed to have struck the right balance between musical integrity and the selling of it. It was quite easy to understand Brian's finding inspiration in CCR, for there are parallels between him and John Fogarty that he could openly connect with and formulate a solid game plan around. On that warm July 1969 summer evening, Brian's immediate plans were to go swimming. Nobody wanted to join him, so he went alone. A while later, he was joined by his girlfriend, Anna Wolin, and the builder who was living in Brian's house while he carried out renovations. The builder's girlfriend, a nurse also staying at Shaja Jones, came out of the house to check that Brian was doing okay, given his evening's alcohol and chemical intake. She found her to be all right and returned to the house. On their arrival back in the house, the nurse realized that Brian had been left alone. She went out again and found him lifeless at the bottom of the swimming pool. What happened next and whether Brian was alive and for how long after the builder and the girlfriend had joined the nurse and got him out of the pool becomes and remains a matter of confusion and conflicting opinions, chiefly as to whether Brian was alive when the ambulance and medics arrived and as to the diligence of those who might have sought to revive him. We do know that the police duly arrived, followed by a local doctor who examined Brian and pronounced him dead. Brian may well have been having a mental revival of sorts that helped buoy him up against the trauma of, quote, deciding to leave the stones, but a physical revival had been out of the question for a long time. At the coroner's inquest, his asthmatic condition, the possibility of an epileptic fit, and his drug and alcohol intake were examined as to the part they played in his death. The pathologist would announce that Brian had pleurisy and enlarged heart and a diseased, excessively enlarged liver. Coroner recorded a verdict of death by misadventure, drowning under the influence of drugs and alcohol. The swimming pool was an incidental, thrown in for Brian's closing night, for Brian had, for a fatal length of time, been drowning under the influence of life. It's one of the sad ironies of entertainment and life in the public eye that only a minute percentage of those in the field of artistic endeavor rise above the odds to find themselves embraced and held in high esteem by the public. So many enter this camel race and attempt to, to fit through the eye of that needle that so attracts already suffering from, from and cripplingly bereft of any reasonable self-esteem. For if the moment of the actual doing is not the moment of truth and is not self-sufficient and apparent, and if you find yourself waiting for the applause and approval to confirm the moment you missed in the first place, then you are fucked from page one. Brian was such an excessive ass licker in his attempts to satisfy his excessive need of everything and everybody that his tongue had to have collapsed along with his liver and other life-giving parts. Brian had no business except the business of trying to buy approval of making Ian Stewart the empty promise that he would, quote, be taken care of when Stu was told I didn't want him in the stones and the group were not going to do anything to deny me my wish. That is, unless Brian had convened Eric Easton, myself, and the Stones to have us all agree that Ian Stewart was to be treated as an equal financial partner in the group. No such meeting was called, and Brian's move on Stu could only be seen by him as the pathetic, empty promise that it was. Brian's death had no heartfelt effect on me at all. It was the first death I found useless, and the first funeral I did not attend, finding its honor roll of inbreds and supporting queens completely pathetic and fake. In the flesh... Brian was one of the first people I'd met who was truly dead on this earth. I can recall his eyes for you. They were searching for something I wish upon nobody, something not even Anne Rice has figured out. But David Mamet understood from the off, and Truman Capote got scared to death by, by because it was around his ex every next corner in thought. There was no point in trying to have empathy for the dear monster child. He'd only use it against you. It was as if, having been granted like a cat nine lives— 
Brian Jones had been sent back mistakenly for life number 10. He has one last bit of where he talks about in the middle of the 1980s, he was working on a reissue of uh, a Rolling Stone's greatest hits CD, and he went back and listened to some tapes, some Christmas greeting spots the Stones had done in 1966. He says, they were funny, off the cuff, real, natural, and happy. The Stones laughing at their own mistakes and their inability to read one line without cracking up. Charlie would mispronounce the album title, and Bill would forget to mention he was with the Rolling Stones. Mick and Keith were just giggly Christmas titters. But Brian's voice was totally scary and gave me real chills. It came from a dark and different frequency, disconnected place, and shared none of the joy and mirth of the rest of the group. Brian had his own sound, underground, and I could not edit it into Mick, Keith, Charlie, and Bill. It didn't belong. So that's Andrew Lee Oldham on Brian Jones. And let's hear our final track. This is Sing This All Together, which is the closing track on Satanic Majesties. And this is exactly the kind of jamming drivel that the Stones chased uh, Andrew Lou Goldham off with. Sing this all together, the concluding song on the Rolling Stones, their Satanic Majesty's success uh, request. Sorry. And um, last thing I want to say is I haven't talked much about Andrew Oldham's other work, his production of The Small Faces, his uh, ownership and management of Impact Records, produced a number of key tracks in the 60s. Um, but I do want to co- quote Tony King, who's a colleague of, of Oldham, who has an extended riff about the number of managers from this period who didn't make it that um brian epstein of course overdosed in 1967 peter grant of led zeppelin barely outlived the band and andrew luke oldham was basically shattered and took decades to recover from his experience of managing the rolling stones so it's possible to be close to the fire and get burned without being in the middle of the fire. And so that's it for this Let It Roll. I've been discussing Andrew Lee Goldham's Two Stoned as a part of our Rolling Stone series. Thanks for listening. And there's also another anecdote I wanted to get into, and I should mention it because next time I'm going to be talking about John Phillips of the Mamas and the Papas. And uh, one of Oldham's big accomplishments was co-producing the Monterey Pop Festival. And that was something he used kind of as an excuse to get out of London after the Stones had been busted. And he was terrified of being busted himself. This was something that drew a big, drove a big wedge between the Stones and Oldham. But uh, he ended up producing the Monterey Pop Pop Festival, which is where, of course, Jimi Hendrix and The Who and Janis Joplin and so many others became superstars. And it's also where San Francisco and the psychedelic rock sound took over from the Los Angeles studio sound of the Beach Boys and, and the Monkees and others and the Association and so many others that have been dominant before that. And after that, it was all about the Jefferson Airplane and the Grateful Dead and Janis Joplin and Big Brother and the Holding Company. But in the course of this, Aldham tells a story of watching 
John and Michelle Phillips seduce his wife while he's incapacitated on some psychedelic they gave him. And he can see from his hotel room into the window of the Phillips's room as uh, Papa John and Mama Michelle have their way with his wife. And it was quite a shattering experience. So that'll serve as an intro to next week when we talk about John Phillips, who's one of the few people that makes Brian Jones look like a, a a stellar human being. So next time on Let It Roll, I'm your host, Nate Wilcox. Thank you for listening. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at letterrollpodcast.com. Thursday, we'll have another Let It Roll nightmare. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast. And you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.